you would please open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as we pick back up where we left off from last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Today you will see that uh, the title is an epistle of Christ. As we will see, Paul continues in his letter to the Corinthian believers. And if you were with us last week, you know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 and verse uh Verse 17, but 16 and 17 especially. Actually, I'll take you right back to the 15. Let me get my spot here. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and, the other, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? And then Paul finished there in this part of that letter, therefore we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Paul here at the end of, of chapter 2 in this letter reminds us that Paul saw us as incense, giving forth the fragrance of Jesus, Jesus Christ who lives and reigns within you as a believer. And if Jesus reigns in your life, if he is Lord of your life, there is a fragrance of him that comes from your life. You don't have to tell him what brand you're wearing. Or what, what you sprayed on or dabbed behind your ear. And it's not a fragrance that you're ashamed of, let alone hiding from. It is not something you're trying to, to, to hide another odor. It is something that God has given and is working and permeating through your life. It's not like you had a good Italian meal with a lot of garlic and someone said, you smell a little garlicky here. Did you have a garlic feast last night or what? But someone who is around you and close to you can smell a fragrance from your life that you've been spending time with Christ. You don't even have to say anything. They just know it. But Paul saw these believers in, in Corinth had this incense or giving forth a fragrance of Jesus Christ in their lives and their labors. The works that they were doing. They just watched what they were doing in their life and they could tell that they were doing it because they were doing it for the kingdom of God. They were doing it because they wanted to please God. Not themselves, not others, not this world. But to God, believers are the very fragrance of Jesus Christ. Their like, Christ-likeness is what God is doing in your life as a believer. And we see this. Paul made it very clear to us last week in chapter 2. And in that same way, the message of the gospel is a message of life to some. But it's also a message of condemnation to those who reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because to one, the fragrance that they see from your life is a sweet-smelling aroma. There's something about you that they want to be around you because there's something coming from you that, that just, just pleases their senses. But for those who do not want anything to do with God, they cannot get quick enough to get away from you because there's a sense that comes from you that just repels them. And you wonder, why do people want to hang with me here? I'm a, what is it about my life? And you feel rejected at times. But recognize that the more you're with Jesus the more the fragrance becomes so clear 
the more those who really do not want the light, the more the, the, those who do not want the fragrance of Christ's likeness will not be able to handle being around you. And it's not because of you. It's because of Christ coming through you. It's okay. Because eventually we pray that that fragrance will be the fragrance that they will come back to because they recognize once they get away from you, it really stinks out there in the world. They hear, they see, and they smell the decaying flesh. And they can't wait to finally get away from that and come back to that fragrance they've smelt in your life. That's what, le- that's what wins people to Christ. Do you know that is your fragrance? Well, today we're going to see that not only are we a fragrance of Jesus Christ, but we're a living epistle, an epistle of Christ, a story. Your life is a story that is written that people can see and read by watching your life. And that epistle of Christ that will come through your life, that life story is going to draw them to Christ or it's going to cause them to want to not be around you. But either way, we're called to be an epistle of Christ. Now in Acts chapter 15, we see the legalists were coming into Antioch. They were coming into Jerusalem and they were causing some tremendous problems with the believers. Those who put their trust, their faith in Jesus Christ alone, they were living for Christ, they were growing, they were maturing. But these legalists, these these people who were Judaizers, who were coming away from the, the, the Jewish faith and wanting the things of Christ, they had to put their faith in Christ, but they, what they've done is that they put on legalism and they said, well, you need Christ, but you also need fill in the blank. Yes, put your faith in Christ, but you need to also. In this case, these Judaizers said you must get circumcised anyway. You must still follow certain rules and regulations and ceremonies anyway. And that's what we refer to as legalism. You need to be saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone, but, and, and they add to it. That's legalism. And you and I, of course, we know the scriptures. We know that is legalism, and we don't touch that. We're saved by a faith in Jesus Christ alone. But as we see in the scripture, when they messed around with these legalists, messed around in Antioch in Jerusalem, they also made their way and followed Paul into where? Corinth. And they kind of creeped in and kind of slithered into the, the churches there in Corinth. And we've seen through the studies of 1 Corinthians now into 2 that these Judaizers, these legalists, were trying to sway the people away from seeing Paul as a great example of following uh, Christ by faith. They were saying, oh, you know, Paul is not trustworthy. He said he was going to be coming, but he didn't show He says these things, but are you really sure you need to do that? And they try to weed in there and, and kind of compromise the truth and bringing in a little bit of religion into the mix. You still need to get circumcised. You still need to hold up to the ceremony. You still have a certain way you must dress. You must behave a certain way. Let us go down the do's and don'ts. And then if you do that, then you must be saved. That's legalism. That is not what we want. What we want is to put our trust in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. And allow him in that personal relationship that you have with Jesus, allow him to transform you And we'll see that today in chapter 3 as Paul continues in his teaching. Today we'll see that he brings forth very clearly the new covenant. God's grace that brings life, that brings a fragrance, 
that brings a story, an epistle of your life that is so well worth reading. There is no question as you read the story of the life that God has done in someone's life, it is one to praise him, to glorify him because of what he's done in your life by the grace of God because there was no other way that you could have changed but by the grace of God. Because he has made us an epistle of Christ. Here in the very first three verses, we're going to see something very clearly. He starts off by saying, Paul here, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Question mark. Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of accommodation from you? For you are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Now, in these first three verses, we see that the grace of God, the new covenant, brings forth a changed heart. The new covenant, this grace of God that is poured into your life, it changes hearts. It changes the inner person of, an, of a person. Not like a circumcision, which is an outer expression of a change. It is not the way you dress. It's not the way how you carry yourself ultimately externally. But it starts with a changed heart and works and permeates to the outwards that people see how you walk and live and talk and speak and, and how you behave and where you go and what you do and who you hang with. But it starts with a changed heart. That's where the grace of God. The law only reveals sin in your life, but the new covenant, the, the grace of God, the spirit of God, changes the inner, inner man or the heart of a person. See, back in those days, there was letters that were given. Here Paul refers to them as epistles of accommodation. Or letters of accommodation from you. So as, as the people would go from place to place to place, what would happen is, is that you would bring this letter from another uh, uh, you know, leader of a church and says, you're coming to this new community and you're bringing this, this epistle, this letter of accommodation that says, I'm here to minister. This is where I came from. This is my background. I vouch for this person who's coming to minister to you in your church or in the temple. Sometimes you would bring that letters of accommodation from you that would be sent out for someone else. So either way, these letters were communicated to give a sense to understanding to those who do not know you or who is being sent that these, these, are, these are good guys. These are good. You can trust them. They're, you can learn from them. They're here to do that. And that happens still today. If someone is coming out here, there are many times they'll get letters. They'll say, Pastor Corey, uh, this is our ministry. We'd like to come out here and I'll send you about four or five letters from other churches to vouch for me that I, this is a good uh, ministry. This is good. Can I come and speak to your congregation? So nothing new under the sun there. It, it happened then. It happens still today. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with the letters of accommodation and letters of epistles of accommodation. But Paul is saying to them, do I really need to come to you, the church in Corinth, with a letter or some kind of a letter of accommodation or an epistle of accommodation to, 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 to speak for my life in the ministry of what I do? Do I really need to bring a letter to you guys? Because it seems like there's a division. It seems like there's question about who I am and what I have done. 
of what my ministry and what my calling is. Remember, they were questioning his apostleship. They were questioning if, oh, is he really a, truly a believer, a minister that, in, in, the, in the gospel? Really? So he's sitting here, do I need to begin here with bringing a letter for, to vouch for me? In verse 2, he says very clearly, you are our epistle. You're my epistle. You're the, my letter. You're the, you're the example of what God's calling on my life here. Paul understood this. Paul sent letters of accommodation for many occasions. We see that in Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 16, 3, 1 Corinthians 16, 10, 11, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 16 through 20. He was very familiar with these letters. And they were used appropriately. But now Paul will describe his letter of accommodation based on their lives. What God has done in their life. It's written in, in your hearts. And it's read by all men. Everyone can see your life and see the fact that your changed heart, your changed life, is the letter that I all I need. People just have to look at your life and know, Paul says, I knows that God has been has used me in your life. Because there's a changed life. I mean, the best, probably an analogy in today's world would be a certificate of ordination. Many people will come and think that a certificate of ordination means that you have the credentials of ministry. Where'd you get your, Pastor, where'd you get your ordination from? Where's, where's, your, where's, your, where's your love me wall that sits up there and it shows that you have an ordination certificate that I know that you're a pastor? That's, that's common. That happens. People do question and ask that. Now, keep in mind that, yes, that can be a very important purpose in a public ordination to ministry. A piece of paper can be an identifier. But it's not the proper credential for someone who is called to be uh, an elder or a pastor. The proper credentialing really is in the lives of the people that God brings for that person to minister to. Is there changed lives? Or is there evidence of people's lives being changed through the ministry that God has called and working through the person who's called the pastor or called the, 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 the elder? That's the question. True credentials of the ministries are changed lives. Are there living epistles in front of that person? Someone who used to be lost, they came, they were ministered to, and now they're born again. They've been uh, by regenerate, changed lives. They're growing, they're ministering, they're, they're, they're flourishing, there's fruit bearing from their lives. That is the epistle that Paul is saying here. Your lives are my letters. Everyone can read your life and see your story. It can be very clear that God has done a work through me into your life. That's why I said in verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us. Who's us? Timothy and Titus, as we've seen previously. God used these men in the lives of the, the believers there in Corinth. But Paul also made it very clear to them as well. That Paul's letter of accommodation has an author. And that author is Jesus Christ. The Corinthian Christians were indeed Paul's letter of recommendation. But yet he realized that he did not write that letter. Jesus wrote that letter. Paul is not trying to say, I made you the Christians you are. There's no one who should be standing, Paul is saying, up here and says, I made you Christians. Ah, you're Christians only because of me. He's not saying that. He says, I made, he didn't say, I made you the Christians you are, but he is saying, God used me to make you the Christians you are. Paul's letter of recommendation was written with a pen. And the pen. was Paul himself. 
he wrote into the lives of the people he served. That's what it means to be a pastor. That's what it means to be an elder. That is someone who is willing to serve and to sacrifice and to write into the lives of others. So Paul recognized, I'm just a pen, I'm just a vessel. Jesus is taking that in his hand. And he's taking me and he's just writing what he needs to write into your life. But Paul also says here, it was written with ink. And that ink was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that is working through that pen, through Paul's life, that was changing and writing the life story of you who was listening. And that's how God makes us an epistle of Christ. But Paul's letter of recommendation was written on paper or tablets. And that paper was the hearts of the Corinthian Christians. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to the new covenant. When the law of God would be written in our hearts, Jeremiah 31, 33. They were waiting for the anticipation of this. Instead, God would grant hearts of flesh to be replaced with the hearts of stone. And we see that in Ezekiel eleven nineteen 19 and Ezekiel 36, 26. See, the Corinthian believers showed the result of Paul's ministry especially by the gifts of the Spirit in their lives. Their new lives became a letter from Christ validating Paul's ministry. And so he says, understand all this conflict that's happening in the church there in Corinth. Just realize God has just been working through and using me to change your lives as the Holy Spirit moves through. That you become the letters. You don't need to have a, some man-made verification and guarantee. If there's a calling on one's life, you can, no other man can do that. Only God can do that. All we have to do is sit back and watch and see if there's truly a calling in your life. Because God is going to make sure that becomes just looking in the lives of the people that he brings around you if there's a change that takes place in their lives. That's all we have to do is look. You can say all you want. Because today, with technology, within five minutes, I can get an ordination like this online and I can sit there and marry the best of anybody. Is that really a con? Because I have a piece of paper from the, the latest and greatest website that I can then turn around and marry people and do whatever and just call myself a minister anytime I want to? That's what's happening. But that doesn't qualify you in God's standards. It's changed lives that matters. And those changed lives line up with the scripture, not with their man-made religious ways. There is a difference. And Paul made it very clear here. Now in verses 4 through 6, we're going to see something else what the new covenant does. It says, and we have such trust or faith through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient or adequate of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our efficiency is from God. who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, not of the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now in verses 4 through 6, we see that the new covenant gives life. It doesn't bring death, it brings life into someone's life. See, the law kills, but grace gives life and sustains life. We see that in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 2 as well. John 14, 6 says it really so clear, does it not? I am the way. I am the truth. 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So right there in verse 4, he says, we have such faith or such trust through Christ toward God. So we're able to come to the Father. We're able to come to God because we come through Jesus Christ in that relationship. There is no other way. And it's by faith. It's by putting our trust in, her, in him who loves you who loves her in him, loves them. Do you put that trust? Paul knows that what, what he has just written might sound a little um, self-grandization kind of a thing. He understands that what he's saying, you are my letter of recommendation. You are the person. You, I am the pen that God's hand is using into your life. And it may sound something like he's bringing attention to himself, but he's basically kind of saying to him, and hey, it's, don't, it's, it's, I don't think I'm sufficient at all. I don't know. I don't believe I ha- I'm adequate to be able to do. Who is adequate to be able to change someone's life? To even think you can sit there and say, oh, let me, Adam, I can change their life. How many, how many here, has, don't raise hands, but how many here has tried to change someone's life? I'm going to change them. Well, we're going to do it this way. We're going to do it this way. We learned lots yesterday in the marriage conference. Oh, how quickly we can pull out the great book and, oh, he and she really needs to read this. And we highlight it all and we put it on their pillow and say, oh, he needs to read this because he needs to change. You're thinking you're the Holy Spirit. That somehow you're adequate or sufficient to change someone's life. You're not. He also says, and if you look at the Greek language in verse 5, that the word sufficient, sufficiency, or sufficient as ministers, those are three different words there. One talking in the first one about adequate. Am I adequate in ourselves to think we're equipped to do that, that work? No, God is the only one who can do that work. The sufficiency is talking about capability. Do I have all the capability to do a work in someone's life? Of course I don't have that capability. To be a minister, sufficient to be a minister, to minister and to serve other people, I don't have, I'm not competent enough to meet all the needs of someone. That's what Paul is saying here. That's why we need the Holy Spirit, to help us to do the work of the ministry and be it as a wife ministering to your children, to your husband, your husbands, to your wife, your children, to your jobs. God has to, you've got to have to trust to God to fill you, to equip you, to make you even be a vessel to be used by him for his kingdom, to do the work he's called you to do. Because he says, Paul says in verse 6, the letter just kills. It doesn't physically kill. It just brings to light a guilt, a something that shows that we are a guilty sinners. We're filled with sin that needs to be forgiven. And that's what brings us to repentance and to be, bring to, to forgiveness. But the law continues just to bring guilt and bring you to the point that you recognize you're a sinner. That's what the law was for. And that recognizes how much we need God in our lives. See, some people refuse to be used by God because they think of themselves as not ready. But in a sense, we are never ready or worthy to be used by God in the lives of other people. If we were... If we really thought, I am so adequate, I am so capable, I am so complete and sufficient, of course God's going to use me. What you're saying is is that the, the sufficiency would be of yourself and not of God. Spurgeon says it very clearly. Our sufficiency is of God. Let us practically enjoy this truth. Practically enjoy this truth. We are poor, 
leaky vessels. And the only way for us to keep full is to put our pitcher under the perpetual flow of abundantless grace. That boundless grace. Then despite its leakage, the cup will always be full to the brim. Boy, that reminds us of some of our leaky roofs over there in the globe. Man, we put that bucket in. It didn't matter. We started with a little bucket, and then we went to a bigger bucket, and we went into a big old trash can. And it seems like as long as we put it under the hole and it rained, though, it just overflowed the bucket. But it, it just overflowed. Sometimes the, the, the bucket didn't even hold up, and it would break open. It was so powerful. But that's what God's saying. You just, you're leaky vessels. We know we are not perfect. We're not. But if we just keep under the flowing blessings and the grace of God, the bucket will just constantly stay filled up even though it's leaking out the bottom and everywhere else and pouring out around us. Praise the Lord. Let him just stay under the flowing ways of grace. And allow him to just continue to pour into your life and allow it to flow. The ministers of the new covenant. See, the idea of the new covenant was prophesied in the Old Testament, as I said, in Jeremiah 31, 31. But Jesus demonstrated and put that into practice for us. And you can go back and read uh, Luke 22, verses 19 through 20. This new covenant appears and it brings to establishment between this, this arrangement where between God and his people on the basis of what? Where does this new covenant come from? What is the basis? What's the foundation of that new covenant of grace? Only one. That basis that, 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 that we, God is arranged with people to make this a way to come to him by grace is only by through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection from the cross. That is the basis. That's the arrangement. That's the agreement. That is what God has made way for you and I for that expression of the new covenant or expression of God's grace is Jesus and his work on the cross and that alone. Go back to Luke 22. Think verse 20. Go back there and read that verse. Go back into Hebrews 8 verses 1 through 13. Go back and read that today. See how God has has brought this new covenant about. Because it's not of the letter, but of the spirit, Paul says here. See, Paul contrasts the the letter, the law, and the spirit, the grace. He isn't favoring experience over the word, nor is he favoring uh, an allegory interpretation over the literal interpretation of the Bible or understand the Bible. But Paul is basically saying here that the superiority of the new covenant is over the old covenant. It works together. They're friends. They're coming and complimenting each other. God used the law to bring to light to us how much of us sinners we are and how much we need to change. But then he brings this in and says, but I've, I've paid it all. It is finished. And it's by his grace, by his love, he says, I give you an opportunity to respond to that. And I will forgive you if you're willing to repent. If you put your trust, will you trust, put your faith in me, I have forgiven you and give you life. No more works. No more to-do list. No more get your life right before you can come into the presence of God. He says to come into my presence and I will cleanse you. I will change you. I will make you an epistle of Christ. Your story will reflect a Christ-likeness that you know and I know there is no other way but him doing it. Because we've all been there, haven't we? I'll never do that again. That was a bad weekend, man. I'll never do that again. And I'm going to, I'm going to be like the little, you know, hamster on the wheel. I'm going to run as fast as I can. So. And until you become weak enough and then you fall down again. And then you make all kinds of promises to yourself. And then you fall down again. But God is saying, let me lift you up. 
just follow me. I'm going to lead you away from those weekends. I'm going to lead you away from that darkness. I'm going to lead you away from that emptiness. I'm going to lead you away from the drug and alcohol. I'm going to fill your life overflowing if you just follow me. Trust me. Just keep following me. Yeah, I always picture in my early days, I always kept hurt. Just follow Jesus. Just follow Jesus. What does he mean by just follow Jesus? You know, give me practical. I'm an operations guy. Give me, let's, let's make this operational to me. And not having operations, not everything spelled out to me, and everyone tell me, okay, this is what you need to do, and this is how you need to do it, and how, when you do it, and you're going to do it here, and you have to go here. I, that's what I, I'm on operations kind of guy. But it's so contrary to the faith. Because you're sometimes you're like, well, where are you going to go? Can you tell me the whole thing first before I follow you? Can I tell you? Can you tell me what everything we're going to do first? Can you write it all out for me? See, that's not faith. That's, you want it all spelled out. He says it's a daily walk. And we live by faith and not by sight. And we live by trust, not by having it all laid out. Because some, I assure you, if God laid out your life, there are some times where he takes you on different paths. You would say, I'm not going down that path. I know it's going to happen in 10 years, but there's no way you're taking me on a path on highway such and such to North Country. That is not ever going to happen to my life. See, God's grace doesn't reveal those things to us. <laughs> because we would become very disobedient for what God has in store for us and for his purpose and for his kingdom. Amen? Are you tracking? That's why Paul says, it's not by the law. It's not written now. He even expressed it clearly in Romans chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. It says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. That was going to bring death to us. But now we have been delivered from the law having dead to what we were held by, so that we should serve the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Newness. A changed life. A changed heart. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit coming inside and becomes for us a, writ, a law written on our hearts. He is, he is in us to guide us and to be our law. It isn't that the Holy Spirit replaces the written law, but completes it and fulfills the law. And But it fulfills that work of the written law in our hearts. That's why Paul says the Spirit gives life. And with this spiritual life, we can live out the law of God. Now, so many, some read this scripture and then contemplates in what they're hearing, and they kind of do a pendulum swing to a point where they'll throw out their Bibles. Who needs the Bible? We've been saved by grace. We can live however we want to. We've got liberty. We've got freedom to live. God's just going to love us however we want to live, whenever we want to live, and just however we want to express it. We're free, man. There's no boundaries in Christ. It's just love, love, love. He'll forgive me. In my fornicated state, my adulterous state, my drunken state, name the state, <laughs> even that state. See, it's not saying that because of the now we have the Spirit. The Spirit makes us alive to the letter. Fulfilling and completing the work of the letter in us. We also shouldn't think this is a permission to live our Christian life on in the experience or the mystical interpretation of the Bible. Just experience God. Just go with it. Get the moonlight, the, the lighting just right and the music just right. We're just going to just experience God and we'll just take it. Let's see where God takes us. 
We don't need the Bible. We don't need to study the Bible. We just need to experience God. But the scripture is very clear that we must be approved, true, and supported by studying the literal meaning of the Bible. Paul declared in Galatians 6, 8, that the empowerment of the Spirit through the new covenant was the only way to eternal life. And that there is no other way. Now in verse 7 through 16, we're going to see a third thing that the new covenant brings to light for us. It gets more and more glorious in the new covenant. So let's look at here in verse 7. He says, but if the minister of death, the law, the old covenant, written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit, grace, not be more glorious, this new covenant? For if the ministry of condemnation and, the, and had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because, the glory, because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So take note here in these verses how many, what the different names are for the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We got the, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, and then we see the New Covenant, we see the, 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 spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of righteousness. You can see the contrast that Paul is making here. And as we take a look at this contrast, we understand that the, the living by the law versus living by the grace is two different things there. The fact that we need to have a life is because God gives us that life because of the grace of God that is in and through us. Because we understand in Romans 7, 5 that the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And so God used that law to bring up and stir up to say, hey, you need to change. You need God. You're going to need that. Because if we don't have that, then we would not move toward God. Because we know that it gets more and more glorious because the glory of the, law, of the law is gone. The temple is gone. The, the priesthood is gone. The, the ceremonies are gone. The revelation of God's power. But the glory of God's grace remains and grows more glorious. And we see that even in Proverbs 4, verses 18. Now, as we see this, it brings us back to Exodus and the story of Exodus was Moses, Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35. And if you remember, it, Moses came down from spending time with God on the top of the mountain. And he came down and he had to put a veil over his face after speaking, uh, after speaking to the people. So many people, when they read of that in Exodus 34, they said, oh, the reason why they need to put the veil over his face, Moses, is because the people couldn't handle the glory of the brightness from his face of spending time with God. But that's not clear. Because right here in the scripture here, we see why he had to put the veil over. He had to put the veil over, not because the radiant face of Moses was too much for the people, but because of the radiance of his face was fading. It was temporary. So he would come down, he would be speaking to him, but then he would cover it up because he did not want to see the fact that that was fading away. As Paul refers to here in the scripture, the glory was passing away away it's just fading the law is just fading the glory of the old covenant shining through the face of Moses was a fading glory but the glory of the new covenant endures without fading it will never fade the old covenant which brought death had its own glory but we should expect a greater glory in the new covenant, which brings the ministry of the Spirit 
and life. Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look uh, not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So we see here very clearly. Where is our hope? In the new covenant, our hope and our relationship with Christ brings great boldness of speech. You're willing to speak out. You're willing to communicate what God has done in your life. You're in an epistle of, of, of Christ. It's very clear. People can read your life and see your life. Unlike Moses where he had to cover his face because it was fading. Yes, it was a, for a time. It was, yeah, but he needed to go back up into that presence for that to be re refreshed. But in their minds, they were blinded. That's why today many people want to minister to the Jews. But because their face, the veil covers their eyes because they cannot receive, it's very difficult for them. So that's why we continue to share the gospel and, and show, because you would think they've so clearly, why would they not, as a Jew, to know the Old Testament by heart, why would they not be able to see that the fact that the Messiah is Jesus Christ? Why, would that, why, why aren't they getting it? It's because the veil is over their eyes. Their minds, their minds were blinded until this day. The same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. If you're just reading the Old Testament, if you're just focused on the law, it's not, your veil is not going to be lifted from your eyes. It's the New Testament. As you go through the Old Testament, you see that you need God. You're a sinner. You need to change. You need. And then you come into the New Testament, the New Covenant, the grace of God. And you see he made a way for you and I to come into the presence of God. By faith through Jesus Christ. And when we do that, the veil we see here in verse 14, the veil is taken away in Christ. The veil is not taken away in the Old Testament by the law. The veil is lifted. Your blindness is lifted. And you see when you come to Christ. Nevertheless, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So that should be very encouraging for you and I. When you're talking to someone who is blinded to the truth. Caught up in this world, in their flesh. What does it say? When one turns to the Lord. When they turn away from the world and just turn and put their eyes on Jesus as their way. What happens? That's right. God lifts the veil and they'll be able to see the truths of God. But when you're caught up in legalism, when you're caught up into the law, that veil doesn't lift, does it? No. It's by the grace of God in your relationship with Jesus. Is then the veil lifts and you're able to see. That's why we... It's by faith alone in Christ. That's it. Once they, someone chooses to turn to the Lord, that means they're going to repent, right? Because right now they're going the world's way. They're going the flesh way. They're going away from God. They're doing everything away contrary to what the, the truth is. But when they turn and say, no, I want to come to the world, now they're faced right into truth. God reveals, lifts the veil. They're able to see they're able to breathe. They have a life. Just keep following Jesus. It's simple, isn't it? You're equipped. Go out. Just share people to people the hope and the promise. 
the, the veil, the blindness, the, the, just the confusion that they're living, can just, that can be lifted if they just turn their lives to Jesus and follow the Lord. They will once again see. Verse 17. We see another reason for the new covenant. It brings freedom. Verses 17 18. It brings freedom. Now the Lord is the the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the new covenant brings what? Freedom, liberty. The law brings bondage. We see that in Acts 15.10. The law brings bondage. But grace gives glorious freedom that makes us more and more like Christ Jesus. You get legalistic, you follow the law, you're in bondage. When you follow Jesus, he then gives you the grace that gives you freedom and a life to see the truth. Paul makes it very clear. Now the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God, God, they're both in the Father, God. So he makes it very clear in the Trinity here as we look at this, that this Holy Spirit is God, just as Jesus and the Father are God. And as he works in and through our lives, he brings liberty or freedom in our life. When Paul says here, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. See, Paul's thinking follows like this. When Moses went into God's presence, he had the liberty to take off the veil, and the presence of the Lord gave him this liberty. We, we have the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord, and we live in the Spirit's presence because he gives us under the new covenant, that grace to allow us to come boldly into his presence, to be able to speak and to spend time with him. Because the veil was ripped on the temple. Remember, from top to bottom, he made a way for us to come boldly into the presence. But we don't have the liberty to disobey what the Spirit tells us to do. We have the freedom and the liberty and the strength to be obedient to what the Lord shows us in his words. And what is this liberty, this freedom that we have in Christ? And that is that liberty of access to the Father. He is building on what he wrote there in verse 12 where we can use this great boldness of speech. This boldness is a word that belongs with liberty because the great work of the Holy Spirit is through this new covenant. We have a bold, liberated relationship with God. We can have that. The question is, do you have that? As a believer, do you have that boldness? Do you have that freedom that you are spending time with Christ? Because when we do, we see in verse 18, but we all, key word, all, with unveiled face as believers, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, And when we're looking ourselves in the mirror, and we're looking into the mirror, the glory of the Lord that we see, that we see the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So Paul closes this section with a description of the new life of freedom that all believers enjoy in Christ. 
We, Paul invites every one of us, every Christian, to have this special, glorious, personal intimacy with God himself. You can have that. This is a relationship that is so incredibly important to you, it will transform your life. It's a transforming power that is not the property of just a few Christians, but it is for all Christians to everyone who has an unveiled face. But the question is, how do we get an unveiled face? Well, he just told us, didn't he? When one turns to the Lord, the veil has been taken away. Verse 16. When you turn to the Lord, the veil is lifted. You are able to then come in and with that unveiled face, be able to look into the mirror, the glory of the Lord, and he will start transforming your life. If we will turn to the Lord, he will take away the veil and we can be the one of the all, the one where he, Paul refers to as all. Now the question is, an interesting point here, is that when we see the glory of the Lord, and we see that, but we cannot see his glory perfectly. Because as we can spend time in the mirror seeing and watching and following and seeing him transforming our lives, it becomes clearer and clearer as we walk with him in this life. Just like the ancient mirrors back then that Paul is referring to, they took the metal and they really polished it really, really well to be able to see. It's not like our mirrors that we have today. Today, some of us don't want to have the mirrors as good because they point out all of our flaws, right? It's like, oh, the lighting is really bad in here, you know. It must be the lighting that I'm seeing. It can't be me. Back then, it was a little fuzzier, a little bit, and it really get that fine metal down to be able to see. But it's just not perfect yet because we're not in his presence. But as we behold the glory of God, we will be transformed. God will change our lives and change us from the inside out. Through the old covenant had its glory. It could never transform the lives through the law. But God uses the new covenant. The covenant of grace to make us transformed people. Not just nice people. Oh, he's so nice. He must be a Christian. It's not the transformation to be a nice person. It is transformation from the inside completely. But everyone always wants to ask the question, how can I change? Have you ever asked that question in your life at one point? How can I change? Oh, I want to change. How can I change? How can, how can they change? Oh, I wish my son and my daughters would change. Oh, I wish my spouse would change. Oh, I wish... Fill in the blank. Have you ever said that? Well, the best and most enduring change comes into one's life when we are transformed by time spent with the Lord. There is no other way. The more you spend time with the Lord, the more changes come. Yes, there's other ways to change. Oh, people can try to change you through guilt. Oh, they can try to change you with the willpower. I've got the willpower. I'm just going to dig deeper. I'm going to pull up my bootstraps. Man, I'm going to talk, self-talk my in, myself into this. I'm going to change. And they can even be, you can even be changed by coercion. But none of these methods bring change to a deep and lasting long change as the transformation that comes from the Spirit of God as we spend time in the presence of the Lord. Do you want lasting change or do you want temporary change? Do you want a child to be a, just a temporary obedience? Or would you want your child to have a lasting obedience because of the change and transformation that take place because that child, you kept and brought that child to Christ from birth? You want lasting change or temporary change? 
Because I can assure you, you can manipulate, you can coerce, you can do your willpower, you can do all these things. But they will not last because once you overcome the fear, once you overcome that, and you still want it back to what you wanted before, you will go back to the vomit. Because there was no transformation. It was just a roadblock of guilt. I better do it because mom's going to be... The mom's guilt trip is coming, man. We better get it done. But did they do it with the right heart? Or was it out of fear? Did they do it out because of just the guilt? No, we want our children, we want those to do it because out of love, they want to please. We do it out of love for Christ to please him. And that's why we'll continue to do those and not go back. Because he's transformed. He says, beholding. You have to behold. It's not like some casual look. It's not some, oh, well, just try it out and see how it feels. And if it doesn't feel right, I'll go back to my old ways. But no, this is a behold. This is a careful study. This is studying of God. This is a researching of who he is and what has he done and he, what is he is doing in your life. That's, a, that's why we study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That's why, yes, we go for as long, this short period of time. Oh, one, in a week, I get, well, you know, one hour. But God is saying, you don't need just one hour. You and I need day-to-day time in the Word, spending with Him to be transformed. To behold. To spend time looking into that mirror of what He has for us. Because we don't have to be in bondage. But we have freedom to come boldly into him. And as his truth permeates and comes into our lives, we will be transformed into his image. We will be an epistle of Christ. And this was God's design in our salvation. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, Romans 8.29. And because there is no righteousness, there is none righteousness. None, no, none of us were righteous. And because none of us seek after God, we see that in Romans 3.11, we are able to see the Lord only by his grace. Because he has revealed himself to you and I. And because he lifted that veil off from our eyes, we are being changed and transformed. We're not changed by a program. We're not changed by some religious system. We're not changed by a practice. We're not even changed by some procedure. We are changed by the person of Jesus Christ and that is the only way, my friends. You must know him. Draw close to him. Seek him with all of your heart and mind, soul and strength. We are changed by looking at Jesus, by spending time with him and learning about him and worshiping him. But this transformation is a process. We are being transformed. The work isn't complete yet in you and I. No one is expected to be complete in themselves or in others. No one comes away with some one incredible experience of meeting the Lord and seeing the Lord. Oh, it's a worship. I'm being. You're not complete by that experience. Remember, God has a process. He is a. He's just being transforming us and bringing us in to be more like Christ-like through the experiences of the, from what he's, Paul says here, from glory to glory. Not backsliding to glory, not backsliding to glory, not back, I need to backslide and then come back to glory. And that's how, no, it's from glory to glory. It's taking steps going higher and higher and higher. Not backsliding. Because remember, this glory, this, this salvation that God gives us through the new covenant is one where God says, I am started a new work in you and I'm faithful to complete that work. 
And he takes us from being saved, being justified like you've never sinned before, into sanctification through sanctification is changing you to be Christ-like. And then ultimately, you'll be brought into glorification into his presence in a perfect state. Saved, justified, sanctified, and brought into glorification. What a, that's why we wait for anticipation for him to bring us home. That's why it's soon and very soon. We want to be in the presence of God. Because as believers, God will bring and manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. He is going to bring about a fruit in your life if you will let him. An epistle of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, will bear in your life, and everyone's going to see it. We are progressively being transformed, and we even see that in Paul's writings, and we studied in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, but he's going to bring us into Christ-likeness, and that is what people are going to see. Not only will you have a fragrance of Christ-likeness, but you will be an epistle of Christ. Remember, Christ-likeness is our goal. Christ-likeness is the goal of every Christian walk. Go back today and read Ephesians 4, verses 23 and 24. Colossians 3, 10. Meditate on those verses because that is our goal. And if we have any other goal in this life other than wanting to be more like Christ, you're off track. That's what Paul is saying. That is what the scriptures tell us. We just want to follow Christ, be more like Christ, so that we would be transformed and it would be like a beacon light and salt that would help bring people who are lost, who have veils over their eyes, to come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. But how glorious it is for you and I. Amen? Father, we again thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this day by day as we continue to seek after you and search after you in the scriptures, in prayer, in time of fellowship, as you have us out and about in our lives and as you're refining us and molding us and shaping us, even through each persecution that comes our way because you've allowed it. All of that is for your glory and by your grace we, we just keep following you. Because we want our lives to be a fragrance of Christ. We want to be an epistle of Christ. We want that result. We want to reach the goal as a Christian, as a believer, as a child of yours, to be Christ-like. That's our life story, Lord. May that be our life story. Not of life of being in the world to look like the world, to smell like the world, to act like the world, to behave like the world, to, be, to blend like the world. We want to be different because we know, Lord, following you, you're going a different direction. Holy Spirit, fill us afresh, empower us to walk and follow Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.